and about the fact that the Burks-Fauci lockdowns failed. That's why I came. I came to Washington. I was asked to come because the current policy at the time that was six months before I got there and unfortunately continued for the three and a half months I was there and, and the, the time after I left at the end of November, the Burks-Fauci lockdowns were the official policy of the White House. And that policy, the Burks-Fauci lockdowns, killed people. They failed to stop the, the spread of the infection. They failed to stop the deaths of the elderly. And they inflicted enormous harms and sacrificed our children. And that is, again, the most egregious failure of public health in modern history. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. Man, that hits good. I know. <laughs> We're finally back. Uh, a little bit longer of a break than we expected, but uh, it's all for good reasons. We've been keeping extremely busy here at American Moment and have a bunch of exciting stuff to share with you guys, including the new season of this podcast. And we're going to have on fantastic, bigger, better guests than than ever, and it's, it's going to be a really good time. But uh, we have a bunch of other stuff we've had cooking as well. So before we get to our guest today, Scott Atlas, I wanted to mention a couple of programs that you can apply for if you are so interested. Uh, first of all, the Fellowship for American Statecraft, the program that got so many of you excited about what American Moment is doing. The application for that is live again. You can go to AmericanMoment.org fellowship and find all the information about it. But at its core, it is a three-month program where people who want to work in politics, who want to work on the Hill or on nonprofit organizations, they come to us, they apply, and if they're aligned on the priorities that we care about, if they have a long-term vision for how they want to implement those priorities, and uh, we like them, uh, we'll pay you guys $3,000 a month in order to get your first job in D.C. Last year, we placed them with people like the offices of Senator Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio, the Republican Study Committee, the Center for Immigration Studies, and many more. And this year, we have a bunch of new and exciting destinations along with many repeat customers, and hopefully we'll be able to grow the program as well. Uh, it was extremely competitive last time. We got 270 seven applications for 10 spots. I anticipate it'll be even crazier this time, but please apply. We are not one of those organizations that's looking for the kid that's checked all the Harvard and Yale boxes and is going to law school and is, uh, could just as easily get an internship somewhere else in DC. We're looking for people who genuinely want to do this kind of work long-term, have a vision for what the future of the right needs to look like, and just need help. And that's what this program is for. So make sure you apply. Uh, we're processing applications on a rolling basis this year. So the earlier you apply, the better. Uh, but that application does finally close on April 1st, but do not wait that long. Um, second, we have a new program called Foundations of American Statecraft. This is for people who are already in DC. So let's say you're a an intern, a staff assistant, an LC on Capitol Hill, or the equivalent level in uh, the public policy nonprofit space. How do you credential yourself to get that first policy job in a given area? Well, we've created this program in order to do that. It's a 10-week certification course where we come in one night a week uh, for lectures and readings and seminars with American Moment and a bunch of really excellent speakers that we've assembled. And at the end of the program, after 10 weeks, so, uh, you know, 
10 uh, three-hour series of lectures. Uh, Each uh, day is split up into three one-hour sessions. So that's 30 lectures plus readings. Um, There'll be some oral examination at the end in order to make sure that we can really vouch for your fluency on the topic, and then a $500 stipend if you complete the program uh, well. that program application is live now and it closes very soon. It closes on March 1st. And so be sure uh, to get in your application uh, if you uh, want to learn more about, in this case, foreign policy. This first one is on the issue area of conflict, foreign policy, and diplomacy. So if you are upset at all of the agitation for war that you see in Washington, D.C. and want to put meat on the bones on what an agenda of realism and restraint would look like, this is the program in order to learn more about it. And um, if you are uh, inclined this way, but you haven't had anyone explain it to you properly and you really want to believe, this is the program for that as well. So been getting a lot of really good applications for that as well. So be sure to check that out. Again, that one is closing much sooner. So if you really want to take a look at it, go to AmericanMoment.org slash foundations. Um, Nick, what else should people be paying attention to? Uh, everything that you and I tweet. <laughs> uh, they should turn on tweet notification. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you should certainly follow American Moment on Twitter uh, at ammoment.org. Uh, that is usually the first place where we announce all these programs. You know, whether it be uh, foundations or or fellowship, um, or you know, some special giveaways, new podcast episodes, all that fun stuff. So certainly make sure that you're following us there. Um, you know, we have interest forms for other. Uh, you know, future endeavors of ours, including Summit, uh, which is going to be our conference on American statecraft. Uh, you know, it is really hard to plan a conference. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I've been to a lot of political conferences, but I've never, uh, you know, peeked behind the curtain, as it were, as to as to how complicated it is. So uh, I've spent a lot of time doing this uh, since we've launched the show. But you should uh, certainly fill out the summit uh, interest form. Uh, I promise we will have some news about that, uh, you know, within the coming months. Um, and Lord willing, we'll have a summit this year. Uh, but uh, should certainly check that out. Um, if you're not on our email list already, uh, there's really easy ways to, to fill out your information on our website. Oh, there's the... Uh, American moment slash join. That's right. American moment.org slash join. If you get really fired up by the stuff you hear in this podcast and you want to get involved right now, if you fill out American moment.org slash join, you'll meet with a member of our team and we'll figure out how to get you placed and involved right now. Um, dozens of you have filled that out. We've met with lots of you. We've placed lots of you. Yeah, that's how, that's how, you know, you've noticed it's changed from, uh, I will meet with you to someone on our team will meet with you because so many people have filled it out. Uh, Sarab does not physically have enough time in the day anymore uh, right. uh, to meet with I everybody. crave death. Um, <laughs> if I look a little bit tired today, it's because I've just gotten off uh, three 5 a.m. flights uh, every morning for the last three days. And so I am mm-hmm. not having a good time. <laughs> but uh, it's all good things. We've been... Um, hard at work, you know, raising the money we need in order to put on all these programs and everything. So if you'd like to financially support us, you're more than welcome to do so. And AmericanMoment.org slash donate is how you do that. But enough with the throat clearing. Uh, today we have on the first episode of season two of Moment of Truth, and our guest is Dr. Scott Atlas, um, someone who we've been wanting to have on for a very long time, and someone who really touches on a lot of the issues we care about. Uh, His formal bio is that he's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University, and he investigates the impact of government 
on the uh, and the private sector on access, quality, pricing, and innovation in healthcare, and is a frequent policy advisor to government and industry leaders in these areas. But he also served as a senior advisor for healthcare for several presidential candidates and has advised Congress on healthcare reform. And from August to December of 2020, served as a special advisor to the President of the United States and a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. We've been wanting to do the episode all about what we think of COVID for a while. And this is that episode. Uh, We dive deep into the origins of the pandemic, what the mistakes that public policy leaders made at every step of the process. Dr. Atlas is perfectly suited to the long form uh, format, and and he really got to shine in this episode. And you're going to learn a lot. You're going to think about how to frame the issue of COVID in new ways. And uh, it was an absolutely delightful time. So uh, without further ado, we'll go now to Dr. Scott Atlas for uh, episode one of season two to a moment of truth. Welcome back. Dr. Atlas, thank you for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. So we want to take the long view on this. You know, we, we could have done a COVID episode at various points in the last year of taping this show, but we always wanted to kind of wait until we felt like we could actually take the long view on the entire pandemic and some of the systematic failures that have occurred. Um, take us back to the beginning of the pandemic, January, February of 2020. What were you seeing? Where were you? Um, you know, what were sure. you focusing on at the time? And, and how did you react in those earliest days of the pandemic? Sure. Back in uh, January 2020, I was not working on the pandemic. I was writing, rewriting a book on uh, reforming the American healthcare system. And it became obvious in January, February, that there was a virus that was um, seemed extremely lethal, according to the World Health Organization early estimates. Yet there was a sort of an already off the rails narrative about what should be done, and that even the danger from the uh, the early statistics showed that. As every other virus, uh, there's a certain group of people who are at risk, and this was in that case the elderly, particularly who are who are sick elderly, frail elderly. And the uh, fatality rate that was quoted was frightening, even to me, of course. Uh, but when you read it and looked at what they calculated for five minutes, you understood that they were calculating a fraction and that fraction was incorrectly calculated because they weren't considering all the people that undoubtedly had the infection but were not sick enough to seek medical care. And, of course, that that turned out to be true. But uh, it was very frustrating in February to hear what was being said uh, and then early March when the focus, instead of being on protecting the people with known high risk to die, the focus was on just locking down everyone, considering, and and really, uh, we were already encountering an inordinate amount of fear uh, by everyone, as if everyone was equally at risk, as if everyone could die. This was incorrect right from the get-go, And uh, I was just in my home personally frustrated at the lack of logic and common sense because uh, it it made no sense considering everything we knew about viruses, everything we knew about infectious diseases for not just decades but centuries. 
And um, everything we knew about coronaviruses, because this was called a novel virus, which it is, but not as novel as people think, because it's in a family of viruses, coronaviruses, of which four are in circulation now preceding this virus. It's a common cause of the cold, the common cold. It's not a totally uh, unheard of virus, and we don't throw out everything we know about immunology, infectious disease, and uh, immune protection, uh, but we did. And so uh, in these early days, I was just speaking to my own family uh, and thinking, okay, this is irrational what's being said, locking down the idea that we need to shut down all of society when we knew already by that point that the people at risk were the the elderly, people with comorbidities, underlying conditions, serious underlying conditions, and uh, that children were at very, very low risk. Uh, yet this was being ignored somehow. And so I was beginning to read, and I was wondering, where is everybody with any kind of logic and knowledge about medical care and infectious disease? And so I was reading and came across Johnny Anides who is a very highly regarded, internationally known epidemiologist, infectious disease scientist at Stanford, where I work. Uh, and uh, I was thinking and saying in my early conversations exactly what he was saying. And uh, it sort of steamrolled from there. I said, okay, this is out of control, th this sort of illogical uh, description of what's happening. The fear is out of control. And uh, we're throwing away everything we know about biology. And so uh, I decided, okay, this is more important than rewriting my book on healthcare reform. I thought there was an upcoming election and this book would be important because healthcare, you know, is a big issue. And uh, instead I said, okay, I have to start really spending all my time researching the pandemic and then writing. Uh, and I began interviewing and writing. So there's two key public policy interventions that define the earliest days of the pandemic. One was uh, restrictions on travel between countries, and the second was was 15 days to slow the spread. That became you know three years to slow the spread. What was your analysis at the time and and after on both of those? Were those things that you thought were appropriate interventions, or or even those were a mistake given what we what what people who were perceptive knew at the time. Yeah, so the 15 days to slow the spread was based on a on a rather rational rational uh, logical concern that if there was an enormous uh, bolus of cases, it could conceivably overwhelm the medical system and prevent care from other diseases. And uh, we saw, as everyone did, I think, all of the videos from Italy and their, their hospital systems were overrun. Uh, now, when a hospital system is overrun, this is a parenthetical uh, statement I'm going to make, the number of hospitals matters. The medical care matters. If you have a place like, for instance, even Sweden is an example where they have in of an extremely small number of acute care beds compared to every other OECD nation, every other developed nation. Sweden has extremely low numbers of beds, so it won't take much to overwhelm their system. Mm -hmm. uh, and in Italy, we compare to the yeah, we are at, we are at the highest level of acute care beds in the world by far. Mm -hmm. 
and that's why we are far better equipped. That's one of the reasons why our healthcare system and our healthcare uh, resources are better equipped to deal with an acute uh, crisis. But in any event, um, we saw the, the videos in Italy, and of course, it, it, they have all kinds of problems with their healthcare system. They have a different culture. They have a different uh, way of life. It's, it's different. So, But in any event, it was frightening. But the 15 days to slow the spread made sense. If you could slow the spread, uh, you could prevent hospital overcrowding. Similarly, as a secondary thing, if you could slow uh, this disease progression somewhat, and it was never, by the way, said that we would eliminate the virus by the people who were saying slow the spread. It was never said to reduce the number of deaths because it's, it's sort of, if you think about it mathematically, it's the area under the curve. Uh, it doesn't change the number of cases or the deaths from the cases. It just slows the rapidity of spread of those cases. It was never the goal. It was never even conceived of as decreasing the deaths. It was never conceived of as eliminating the virus at that time. Mm. So it was intuitively attractive and it made sense. I thought it was okay to do a very short-term shutdown in an attempt to slow the spread, meaning 15 days. And in the end, of course, now retro, retrospectively, we would say, wow, 15 days, that would have been a, a blip. That would have been a nothing. Uh, and it would have been, it was a reasonable a thought. It would also give at least a little bit of time to send resources out from the federal government, whether it was extra beds, extra medical personnel if needed, uh, personal protective equipment, production and distribution. All of these things were sort of, you know, very uh, reasonable considerations for a very short-term shutdown. The travel shutdown, I think, was well-intended. Uh, China uh, was not forthcoming, was not transparent, as we know, in how long they had the infection, in when the infection began, in what their impact is. I don't think to this day we have a clear a view of how many people died, how many people were infected in China. I don't think it's even relevant what they say So uh, because they're, they're lying. And so, um, but the travel ban was, was reasonable. It was rational to say, okay, there's a place that has a, in theory, local, local uh, infection. We don't want to import it here. So that, that made some sense. I think one of the things that struck me the most, you know, I was living in D.C. at the time, uh, you know, after the first 15 days as, as things kind of started to go on and people, I was living in Northwest D.C., you know, where a lot of the like richer upper class folks are. And is it like I was watching these people panic about it. Um, it really struck me how kind of individualistic the the, the common response to this virus was. I mean, it was very and still to this day, it's very like me and my household focused like the 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 upper class people or even the middle class people who are able to like work from home work from computers or whatever a lot of these people want to stay you know shut down forever or at least for you know as long as uh, they're still able to you know uh, view this as a danger to themselves and to their household um which i think is a very like traditional american response to care about the individual but um i think one of the biggest impacts we've seen over the last two, basically three years now, because we're in 2022, uh, is the impact it's had on society and on the on the collective, on the on on the group, all us Americans living together. Um, what would a response to COVID? I mean, post 
you know, 15 days to slow the spread that prioritized, you know, American communities, American economies um, and that sort of thing. What would that have looked like as we kind of moved beyond the 15 days to slow the spread? Well, so, um, okay, reeling back to that point in time, what I was saying in, uh, you know, end of February, early March, and then writing about and and uh, that got a lot of traction and uh, and interviews was the logical response, and the logical response was also the biologically appropriate response, and the biologically appropriate response was also the safest and most ethical response, and that response is as follows: We know who's at risk, we know who's not at high risk, uh, and so. We want to do everything we can to stop the dying. That means to protect the people at risk to die. That doesn't mean to lock down a five-year-old and close his school when the children who are healthy have essentially no risk. And so statistically, uh, the data showed that. So I, I, I said we should do something called targeted protection. And uh, I started writing about that. And that, that meant uh, basically increasing the protection in, in as much as possible, uh, including things like using the resources that infectious disease, uh, you know, uh, epidemics or uh, crises have at their disposal, which is to test people who are going to come into contact with them, to test people who enter nursing homes, to test people who are in nursing homes, uh, to prevent sick people from being, from exposing uh, older people or people at high risk uh, to the infection, but not lock down people. What was done was the opposite of what was safe. What was done was confine people indoors, which is where the cases spread, and tell people they cannot be outdoors on beaches and parks, which is where the cases do not spread. Uh, the uh, What was done was uh, shut down schools, close schools, and that would mean instead of keeping children who have extremely low risk from this illness in a low-risk environment, keep them in their homes where they're living with and exposed to uh, and mainly indoors with higher-risk people, their elderly parents or, or even family members who are older than that. Uh, and so uh, the – and then, of course, the enormous harms of locking up the healthy people. That means – all the working people, the working age people, people under, you know, 65 are the lower risk people. And as we know now, the risk for people under 70, infection fatality risk, is on the rough order of magnitude of what influenza infection fatality risk is. And we don't, of course, lock down society for that. So uh, I wanted to do targeted protection and keep low-risk people working, keep low-risk children. Uh, you know, there's nothing more important to a society than educating your children. There are enormous harms from closing schools, and the children are high, healthy children have extremely low risk from this illness, lower than influenza. So, of course, it's, it's ludicrous, it's absurd, but it's also enormously harmful to shut schools, and we've seen a lot of the uh, data from that. We are already seeing it. By the spring of 2020, the spring closures alone of schools, uh, we had missed about 250,000 to 300,000 cases of child abuse in that springtime alone mm -hmm. because schools are the number one agency where 
child abuse is noted. Uh, by June of 2020, after the spring closures alone, one out of four college-aged Americans thought of killing himself. Okay, we had massive drops in learning. I mean, uh, online learning is a failure. It was a known failure after the spring 2020 school closures. And so uh, the targeted protection was both a way to increase the protection of the elderly, the people and high-risk people, particularly the nursing homes. And by then, you have to realize 50%, in some states, 80% of deaths were in the nursing homes. Nursing home residents are in a controlled environment. You can't walk into a nursing home just off the street. So they're already set up to stop people from entering. They're already set up to do testing. And so uh, this is what I was proposing, uh, but instead that, that was not done. And so what was done was this extraordinarily harmful, unprecedented, contrary to science, lockdown of society, confining people to where the cases were, forcing people really to not isolate. It was a reckless, uh, completely anti-science, anti-evidence uh, policy of doing these massive uh, lockdowns, harms, restrictions, and preventing uh, people's personal movements, including seeing their elderly parents and or children or grandchildren. It was uh, really the biggest public health care error, fiasco, epic failure in the history of modern public health. So just as a quick follow-up, I mean, would you say that those complete and total lockdowns that, you know, other people in the administration were advocating for, these public health experts, uh, would you say that they were completely, like, performative? Like it was just... Well no, okay, no, no, uh, not really. That's letting people off the hook for their gross incompetence. Um, I came to the to Washington. Okay, here, let, let's set the scene here. Doctor, uh, the the task force was the official federal policy guidance giver, the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Doctor Burks uh, was the head of the medical side of the task force. Doctor Fauci was the most visible, most influential public face of the task force, but the head of the medical side was the task force coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks. Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci were federal bureaucrats for 35 to 40 years. They were, they were successful in keeping their jobs because not because they were politically neutral, but because they were politically adept. They were adept at navigating a highly politicized environment. Um, <clears throat> they had friends in the agencies. They had friends in the media. They knew how to survive and navigate that. That is not the same as what I was. I was asked at the end of July to come in and help the White House, uh, help the advise the president and be part of the task force. I got there end of July, beginning of August. I was very different. I had been for the previous decade full-time healthcare policy researcher and scholar at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. That's what I did full-time. I was not a radiologist. I was not anything else. That's what I did, health policy. Uh, but the previous 25 years, I was in uh, academic medicine as a medical scientist, as a clinician, and as an educator, as a professor in the School of Medicine at Stanford. Uh, for 14 years and before that uh, at other places, including University of Pennsylvania, for instance. And so uh, I came in as a medical researcher background, but uh, a health policy researcher even currently. 
So when a task force meeting was held, and my first one was second week of August, uh, I walked in uh, prepared for what was on the agenda. If I was going to be asked, as which I was, about the risks to children and the idea of opening schools. And remember, this is six months after Burks and Fauci had been uh, running the White House federal policy guidance. Um, I was asked to comment, and so I pulled out my dozen, 15, 20 papers from the world's medical literature, the newest data. I had gone through these papers in detail. I had discussed them with some of the best epidemiologists, infectious disease experts in the, in the world. Uh, and I was asked my opinion, and I cited the literature. I went through these papers. I went through which papers were not acceptable because the methods, the study design, was incorrect or inappropriate, and therefore the study conclusions were not valid. I went through the studies, uh, whether it was on masks or on uh, the low risk to children, for instance, in this case. And what I saw in response was silence from doctors Burks, Fauci, and Redfield, the head of the CDC. These were the three main doctors on the task force. Or simply an accusation that I was, quote, not in the mainstream. I was an outlier. And uh, these people were not ever, not in my view, at any of the meetings I went to during the entire time. I never saw once any of them come in with a, uh, the papers from the world's literature. I never once heard a scientific a refutation of what I said. I never once heard a critique of the literature of any study. I never once heard any of them disagree with each other, by the way, which is a red flag when you're talking about science. And so uh, I was analyzing the data, presenting the data. They were simply sort of going along and perhaps uh, talking about these simple tabulations of cases per day. The other difference was they were focused on one and only one thing, stopping the cases of COVID-19. I was focused on stopping the health harms of the pandemic and its management. Okay, that's very different. Mm -hmm. They never spoke about the health harms, about the massive lives lost from missed medical care, shut down medical care. Half the people getting chemotherapy on can- that had cancer were refusing to come in out of fear. Uh, you know, 40, 50% of stroke patients and heart attack patients didn't call an ambulance because of fear and the shutdown of medical care. You know, 85% of living organ transplants didn't get done. Uh, half no, two-thirds to three-fourths of cancer screenings didn't get done because of fear. And what did that mean? That meant people died. People died from the lockdowns, not the virus. The virus people were dying, there's no question. But as I uh, wrote with some economists from University of Chicago and elsewhere in the spring of 2020, the harms from the lockdowns, life's years lost, was larger, the, big no- the number then the life years lost from the virus. Okay, this was not being spoken about. So it was unconscionable, immoral, and frankly unethical for a health policy leader, for a public health leader, to advise a lockdown to shut down cases of a virus without even talking about, let alone considering, the lives lost from the lockdown. Okay, we have to remember uh, the media and uh, portrayed this as anyone who was against the lockdowns was choosing economy over lives. And that's a false dichotomy because there was a body of literature and economics, decades of knowledge, that 
economic, significant economic turndowns killed people. It was lives lost versus life lost. That was a lie. The second thing they did, they, the media, and the people who are the, what I call the lockdowners, which is synonymous with flat earthers today, uh, is that the lockdowners said anyone who's against the lockdowns is dangerous because they, the anti-lockdown people, must be advocating something called a herd immunity strategy, which is let it spread no matter who's uh, at risk, just survival of the fittest. And that, that's a lie. That was a second big lie propagated by lockdowners uh, because no one that I knew, and I certainly never advocated letting the infection spread you know, uh, and then whoever survives, survives. That's absolutely not what I advocated. Targeted protection, or what, what many people called focus protection later, meant increasing the protections of the people at high risk and stopping the harms, the destruction, the deaths from the lockdowns because the lockdowns literally killed people. And uh, I think that, that uh, evidence was known then Everything that was known about the lower risk of children was known then. Everything that was known about natural immunity was known then by the time that I got to D.C. in, uh, in August. Uh, everything that I say, uh, that I said uh, about targeted protection being safer, better, and about the fact that the Burks-Fauci lockdowns failed. That's why I came. I came to Washington. I was asked to come. Because the current policy at the time that was six months before I got there and unfortunately continued for the three and a half months I was there and, and the, the time after I left at the end of November, the Burks-Fauci lockdowns were the official policy of the White House. That was the policy. Burks wrote all of the guidelines of the task force to every single state. She flew around and gave that advice to dozens of governors, to all of the public health officials. I visited one single state during my three and a half months there. That was the state of Florida. They did something differently. Uh, but uh, that official policy guidance was not just offered. It was implemented. It was implemented by the governors in almost every single state in the country. And that policy, the Burks-Fauci lockdowns, killed people. They failed to stop the, the spread of the infection. They failed to stop the deaths of the elderly. And they inflicted enormous harms and sacrificed our children. And that is, again, the most egregious failure of public health in modern history. Tell us more about the dynamic that was inside the Trump administration. You came several months into the existence of the coronavirus task force, and you saw these unelected bureaucrats in Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks often it seemed contravening the will of the president, and, and there was probably all sorts of conflict happening among even political appointees in the administration. What were the, what were the forces that you, as the outsider, that were brought in um, that, that you were up against um, in that dynamic? Because I think it's such a great example of, of all sorts of challenges that, that conservative presidents might face uh, when it comes to fighting back against the bureaucracy, and there's no bureaucracy more removed from sanity than the public health bureaucracy because they have the imprimatur of, you know, capital T, capital S, the science behind them. What was that like? Well, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, 
an incredible uh, situation that was so harmful. Um, I came in very naive, frankly. Uh, I mean, that was sort of obvious for anybody who saw <laughs> what was happening. I, I was there because people were dying. The President of the United States asked a health policy uh, expert to help in a health policy crisis. The answer is yes. It's sort of obvious to anyone who has any ounce of uh, integrity, really, uh, so I would have come no matter who the president was. Uh, I came because the Burks Fauci policies were grossly failing and killing people. So uh, when I got there, I had already seen by the time I got there uh, last couple days of July that the president was saying something very different from what the official policy of the White House task force was. The president was saying, open the schools. The president was saying, the lockdowns are destroying people, open businesses, uh, and protect people who uh, have a high risk. That was essentially what he was saying in his very common sense way. Um, so I came and thought, okay, uh, why am I being brought here? I'm being brought here, uh, hopefully, because there's a chance to change the, uh, what was happening. And so uh, when I was asked to advised the president on my first visit there, uh, I ran into a situation which I, I wasn't used to. Uh, I mean, the first part of the answer is sort of my, my own self, what I, what I was surprised at what I ran into. And the second part is the longer answer to what you asked, which is, you know, when Jared Kushner, at the end of my first day there, which I just came for that day to, to answer questions, really, I had no idea I was was asked to do anything longer than that. I went through this in my book. Um, I sa he said, well, we'd like you to help the president. Would you be willing to help? And I said, well, I, I just wanted you to know what you're getting here. Uh, and I think anybody who knew me beforehand knows uh, how I am. But I said, you know, I'm never going to change what I say if I'm right, no matter who tells me to. I'm not going to sign on to some group statement if it's not what I agree with. Uh, and I'm never going to agree with anybody or say anything just because someone tells me to. I'm going to say what I think is the truth, period. And, uh, you know, to Jared Kushner's credit and to my, uh, my surprise, he said, that's exactly why we want you. So I thought, okay, this is, this is going to be good. So now I'm in my sort of naive hat about Washington. And then, then the next sentence he said was, but, I, you know, he, this is Jared Kushner talking. I, I'm concerned that they're going to try to destroy you if as soon as it becomes public. And, uh, you know, I went through this also in my book, and I said, well, uh, you know, I, that, that, that threw me a little bit, and I said, well, um, maybe I'll try it from home. And so I went back to California. He said, okay, and I went back to California. It just wasn't working. You can't advise the president of the United States on a real-time thing when they're having press conferences every day and you're listening to this sort of asynchronous uh, information coming that was inherently conflicting with fact from the task force. And so I, I went back and I ended up coming there for uh, an uncertain amount of time that ended up being uh, a, a few months. But what I encountered there was um, not only people who were incompetent, the medical side of the task force, people were unprepared, completely unprepared. They didn't know the literature. They made apparently no effort to know the literature, but they were afraid of they had their own sort of, uh, my perception was, uh, personal agendas. Uh, and why do I say that? Well, one example is this. 
as a scientist uh, or a someone advising on a medical science issue, in the kind of career that I had, I mean, the way you win an argument or a carry the day where I work at Hoover Institution is you're going to walk into a room. There's a lot of smart people there. You better know more. Okay, uh, that's, that's what the argument is. And what I encountered there was uh, people who didn't, didn't, didn't want to even have a debate. They didn't want to... Uh, they didn't want to listen to what I said. They wanted to just personally attack it and then have other people personally attack it. So they had their friends in the media. I mean, this was exposed in the recent uh, emails between Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, and Anthony Fauci, a very powerful people in the public eye, very powerful people because they control all the funding of all research. They were collaborating with the media to smear people, scientists who disagreed with them. That's an outrage. These are despicable people who shamefully ended their, their careers this way, and that's a disgrace. It'll go down to one of the biggest disgraces and abuses of public health to manipulate the media to smear people rather than engage and spend time engaging in the scientific debate. <clears throat> but the other thing I saw was a specific incident I related in the book, which is I thought, okay, I'm advising the president president has questions. I'm going to get some of the, I was connected to the academic science crowd. I'm not a bureaucrat. I came from outside, uh, thankfully. And so I said, I'm going to, I'm going to arrange people who are doing the research on the pandemic to come in and speak to the president. Uh, I felt my job is to give him information and to answer his questions. And so I organized some of the top scientists in our country from the coast to coast, pediatric infectious disease uh, experts, virology experts, public health experts from UCLA, Stanford, Harvard, Tufts in Boston. We came in, we set the meeting up with the president and then with the vice president the following day so that Deborah Burks could attend. She refused to come and in fact pulled out at sort of the last minute, right, the day before the meeting, which, which almost caused the meeting to be to be uh, canceled, and I insisted it go forward. Now, that kind of behavior, pulling out of such a meeting with other experts, people doing the research on the medical science, uh, is not the behavior of a scientist. That's not the behavior of someone interested in, in learning from the people doing the research. It's not the behavior of someone who's, who thinks that they're perhaps even capable of defending their own policy recommendations. That's the behavior, in my view, of someone who's threatened, who's personally threatened, who's insecure, who can't hold up uh, the, uh, the debate with people who are experts, okay? If that is the reason that that meeting was uh, withdrawn by Deborah Burks, then that's the kind of person that shouldn't even be at the table. That's, that's just, that's not, that's not okay. Uh, and, and in fact, that meeting uh, was held and it was very important because the meeting was basically the president, as I mentioned in the book, in some detail, going around and asking questions of people who were the actual experts doing the research. These people were not sitting behind an office uh, in, in a government agency, uh, you know, filling out budgets uh, and doing media. These were people who were doing the research. The this is, I thought, uh, fantastic. Uh, and in fact, one of the most important things I did was bring in people to talk directly to the president, the vice president. If you're afraid to show up at a meeting like that, uh, and then, by the way, Dr. Burks complained to the media 
and testified to the House of Representatives subcommittee that there were, quote, alternate streams of information coming to the president, unquote, that were not through her. Now, what, I don't even know what to make of that kind of comment. That comment is stunning. It's, 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 it would be comical if it wasn't so harmful, uh, and, but also revealing about what kind of people we're dealing with inside. When you ask me what kind of people I encountered, this is the kind of person I encountered. People who thought they should filter the information to the president of the United States, people who were not secure enough to come to the meeting and discuss it, and people who at that time were collaborating in secrecy via emails now that we know to uh, undermine, delegitimize the scientists that were talking to the president, including me. I mean, that were de including delegitimizing me, which they tried to do, uh, you know, very aggressively. So uh, it's a disgrace. I think uh, we really have to, this is one of the purposes of my book that I wrote, is that Americans have to know what kind of person was in charge of the pandemic here, the scientists that were, we somehow used to attribute expertise to and trust just because of their, their title, okay, their credential. That era is over. We as people must become critical thinkers ourselves. These people had no concept of how to even use critical thinking. It was embarrassing some of the stuff they, they said at these task force meetings. But we as individuals uh, need to take the responsibility for ourselves now to figure out not just who to trust, but also to look at the information ourselves and to uh, you know make the best decisions for ourselves and our families. So what do you think that the next Republican president can learn from you know, these experiences that you're talking about and what we've seen through um, this awful response to the pandemic. I mean, what lessons related to personnel and trusting these uh, bureaucrats that have been in Washington for 30, 40 years, uh, what lessons should be taken from that? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, some things were done correct. I just want to make sure, you know, there were two sides to the sort of task force and federal effort. One were, as I mentioned, the medical guidelines, but those were just guidelines and the governors in, in, in the end, because of the federalist system that we have, appropriately decide what to do. But then the other side were the logistics, uh, the uh, partnership with private sector to get vaccines and medications developed rapidly, to produce personal protective equipment, ventilators, which were never needed, uh, but uh, medical personnel, beds to hospitals. So all that stuff was federal uh, responsibility. And, and after a, a, a poor start about the testing development, they did and ultimately develop a ro very robust uh, testing apparatus and all these other resources that were allocated and logistics were done very well. Uh, so uh, that, that's one side of it. But the lessons learned are, A, you know, uh, be prepared uh, as much as possible, and that means to not have a bare cupboard of uh, the stockpile of drugs that are needed in emergencies. There was a bare cupboard. There was no significant national stockpile uh, that the president inherited. That had to be developed and was developed. Uh, to have logistical systems in place for, for navigating around, and I think that was partly in place but had to be developed. Uh, to be prepared to privatize and to partner with private sector for developing drugs and um, 
you know, uh, vaccines or whatever is needed. And that was done, I think, pretty well, although the NIH was a gross failure and the FDA in working on the trials for clinical uh, drug treatments, they, they failed. That's an egregious failure that two years into the pandemic, we still never did the clinical trials on widely available, already approved FDA drugs. Instead, there was a politicization of that. But the, the bigger lessons to learn for, is that, A, we cannot have a politicization of science. That's what was done, uh, and that's hard to avoid. I'm working on that with others, uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm here is I'm working on a new initiative with Hillsdale College on that. Uh, but we cannot, uh, we need to make sure that uh, this is fixed. How do we fix that? Uh, well, uh, A, we need to make sure that the funding stream that is currently controlled almost as if it's a cartel, the research and science is controlled by basically the NIH and people like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins and their, their successors eventually, which who there will be. Uh, and these people are controlling the science research. They're also controlling what's published in the journals and the scientists in the universities need that science funding from the NIH to get their own promotions. So they, they're at risk if they speak out against the NIH or anyone in the NIH. And so there's this very uh, unhealthy, incestuous uh, relationship between funding and public policy control and publications of research. This has to be stopped. We're working on fixing that. Uh, there's legislation that probably should be uh, considered about uh, things, although I'm not an expert on formulating legislation, to stop the universities from censoring and preventing the free exchange of ideas because the universities have been gross failures, including my own Stanford University, uh, because it's not enough to say, well, we're not going to fire you for saying what you're saying. That's not free speech. What free speech is is being able to speak freely and have an exchange of ideas that is central to arising at the so solutions we need without fear of intimidation or censure. And, of course, I was censured by a group of really uh, unhinged Stanford <laughs> University professors who are not just ignorant of what the facts were, but were doing it in a heavily politicized way because they can't think outside of their own political biases. And so they uh, inappropriately assumed that anyone who would disagree with what they wanted was political, which of course wasn't the case. But in any event, they embarrassed the university name and this was done all over the country at many universities. So that, that has to be fixed. But the president and any incoming administration has to realize that the people in these agencies are career bureaucrats. Some of them are good, others are not. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of a sort of an unhealthy permanence to these people's positions. And uh, we need to make sure that we have much more involvement of outside scientists, of outside experts who are not uh, sort of in this, uh, what is loosely referred to as the swamp of Washington, D.C., but whose jobs don't depend on uh, these sort of inter or intra-agency maneuvers. That's very unhealthy. It failed us here, and that, that can never happen again. And secondly, frankly, the best people are not sitting in government bureaucrat positions for 40 years. That's not the top scientists. These people were billed as the world, the nation's top scientists in infectious disease. That's a false conclusion, in my opinion. That is a grossly erroneous assessment of who's been running the pandemic. And we can look at how these people have been failures. Again, they failed to stop the spread of the infection. They 
They failed to stop the deaths of the known high-risk people, and they destroyed the low-risk people, uh, including our children. And by the way, uh, Americans should realize we are the only country of our peer nations that closed schools in the fall of 2020. The Western European peer nations, they kept their schools open with no negative impact. We destroyed our kids, and we're still having these incredible, it's almost a Kafka-esque to consider that we're having these debates about opening schools right now, let alone the complete pseudoscience, the denial of science about vaccine mandates, about masks. This stuff is proven already, yet we are still, as a country, uh, sort of, again, acting like flat earthers. Uh, it's, it's almost inexplicable. So we need to have a much better pollination of the government effort with the private or the non-government employee scientific experts. But then the bottom line, really, I know every answer I give is very long-winded because there's so much to say. I'm sorry. But no, we like hearing uh, the, you know, the, the bottom line of what a president has to understand uh, is that the policy is never to be delegated to a scientist or an advisor or some other bureaucrat. Never, never, never. That's not the role of an advisor. What we saw was the White House Task Force guidance being doled out by Dr. Burks, period, with no filter, nothing. That was the policy. Since when is the policy to be determined by a single unelected bureaucrat? The President of the United States is in charge of the policies. The appropriate way to do this is to, to do what President Trump tried to do, which was get various people to give input, but then make the decisions and the policy guidance. And that's where there was... Uh, a problem because the policy guidance was literally given over to the CDC, the people like Deborah Burks and Dr. Fauci, and that that's just a huge mistake. That's inappropriate. I want to go back to that silver lining you mentioned of the task force, namely the logistical development of things like the vaccines and personal protective equipment. Um, I thought that that was a very interesting phenomenon to witness because, you know, the story of the last 20 to 30 years, especially when it comes to science and technological innovation, has been that that we've been stagnant a lot. Um, you know, the Peter Thiel line is that we wanted flying cars, we got 140 characters instead. And, and it seemed like uh, that the rapidity with which we were able to, to get a vaccine up and running was one of the few examples of actually being able to develop something on an attenuated timeline that was really novel. Do, do you think, um, uh, what other avenues of, of innovation where, where government may have a role to play in conjunction with the private sector um, would you be looking for as someone who, who's been on the, the cutting edge of, of science and, and research for a long time um, what's the best of what government can potentially contribute in a space like this? Well, in, you know, in healthcare, I have to disagree with the, if there's a sort of a, uh, an implication that we're not a very successful innovation uh, society. We're extremely successful in healthcare innovation, medical innovation. We lead the world by far in number of new innovations, including medical technology. 
uh, including new drugs. And in fact, the American people benefit from that because we have by far the earliest and broadest uh, access to life-saving drugs, minimally invasive treatment, medical devices, diagnostic imaging, by far more than any other country in the world. That's irrefutable. And we've done very well at that. Uh, what the government uh, has done, unfortunately, is increasingly put up barriers to innovation. For instance, a drug takes two plus billion dollars in 14 years to develop from scratch. Okay, that that's no good. Uh, why do I say it in that inarticulate way? It's no good. Uh, it's because people are dying as they're waiting for these drugs. It's because that adds massive costs to patient care, to the patients, to medical care itself. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no reason. So there's a lot of streamlining of regu It's the regulatory process that has ballooned out of proportion to its benefit in some cases, like on the clinical trial side. So we can do much better uh, at facilitating innovation and incentivizing innovation, at making sure we don't de-incentivize innovation with various taxes, uh, various uh, you know uh, distortions of the tax code that get rid of uh, things like capital gains because these risk reward benefit has to be there for for these new things to be funded, et cetera. But we we've done great at that. Now what I saw here. Uh, was uh, this was one of the big successes? Operation Warp Speed was a was a massive success. What was Operation Warp Speed? I, I think this is important for people to clarify because people don't understand. It's not just cutting bureaucracy. President Trump, what he did with Operation Warp Speed was he understood, okay, we're going to de-risk the innovation. What does that mean? That means we're just going to buy, pay for millions and millions of doses of these vaccines before they're even developed. We're gonna, we're gonna prioritize and uh, make their production much cheaper. We're gonna set up simultaneous with the development of these vaccines and or drugs, the delivery logistics. All that was done simultaneously, concomitantly. And so the, the vaccines were ready to go as soon as the emergency use authorization came, the vaccines were out in 24 hours. I mean, that's unheard of. Instead of taking five years uh, to develop a vaccine, it took less than a year. Now, there's issues uh, separately on the vaccines, but uh, the vaccines uh, were a big success, and the vaccines work to prevent people from dying. The vaccines as a separate topic, we don't want to go down this path yet because I want to finish this answer, uh, is the vaccines do not have a, uh, a durable protection against the infection that goes away after two to four months or therefore to stopping the spread of the infection. They do not do that, but they do stop people from dying. And that's, that's critical for people to understand. Now, uh, what the Operation Warp Speed also did was it developed and spent a lot of taxpayer money, of course, on personal protective equipment, on uh, extra beds, on dissemination of these, and medical personnel was delivered where it was needed and on call for when it, was to, uh, when it was needed. But it also developed some drugs, and some great drugs were developed. For instance, the monoclonal antibodies were developed, and these are critical drugs. They prevented hospitalizations on the order of 70-plus percent reduction if you get them as an outpatient if you're symptomatic with COVID. Uh, for the highest-risk people, by the way, those drugs, trials on monoclonal antibodies were done on people who were older, obese, highest risk people, and they stopped hospitalization. So that was uh, a, a very successful part of Operation Warp Speed. Uh, but what, what, what failed were the drug developments by the agencies. 
by the NIH and the FDA. They never did the trials that were necessary on safe, low-cost drugs like hydroxychloroquine, like ivermectin. Why do I say they're safe, low-cost? Because that's factual. They were, they've been used, they're FDA approved, they've been used for decades. Billions of doses of these drugs have been given across the world, but they never did the clinical trials. As soon as the president said everyone should use hydroxychloroquine, it works, and that may have been a premature, that was a premature statement, there was a political backlash, and in my view, uh, there was a politicized rebuttal that was a knee-jerk rebuttal of that. It made people afraid the drug hydroxychloroquine was called dangerous. It's not a dangerous drug. That's a lie under medical supervision. In fact, many countries, it's over-the-counter. You don't even need a prescription. The drug's been available for 70 years. Whether it, it was proven to work or not is a separate question. The problem I'm pointing out is that the clinical trials were not done. And so uh, that's not really innovation as terms of developing something new. It's simply using the system efficiently without a political backdrop. There was a tremendous amount of political uh, backdrop, uh, and th that's very unfortunate because it's probably true that people died, okay, from from this uh, political backdrop, and that that's that's sort of unconscionable. So. Uh, you know, what, what we have, we need, a, we need a president, we needed leaders, we need leaders who are not afraid of uh, bucking the system of bureaucracy. Uh, we need somebody who understands how, how, how timelines can be expedited. We need somebody who isn't afraid of political backlash, but we need somebody who then steps forward and gets, go, goes around or replaces people or gets rid of these bureaucrats who are controlling things. And unfortunately, the bureaucrats controlled the response on the medical side of, of the guidance, at least. It's funny that you bring up uh, hydroxychloroquine. I was actually interviewed by Fox in like mid-2020, actually by my now wife, before we were dating, about hydroxychloroquine because I was on it as an anti-malarial when I lived in, in Central America. And so like at the time, journalists knew like nothing about it, you know. And so uh, my now wife reached out to me to ask about it and what it was like to be on it and whatever. But um, I think one of the interesting things that I've seen throughout COVID, I was someone who um, I was like January, February of 2020. Um, I'd already decided that I was very, like, I was very overweight. I was like 70 pounds heavier than I am now. So I had already decided that year that, um, that was going to be the year that I, that I got in shape. And wouldn't you know it, COVID hit and one of the biggest comorbidities is, is being obese, right? And, and, um, not people not taking care of their own health. And I think one of the biggest things that's been exposed throughout this process is that nobody's been willing to, to really talk about that, that one of the biggest things, um, putting Americans at risk of death from this virus is, is their own health. Um, or all sorts of other health issues. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and not getting that stuff checked out and not watching what they eat and that sort of thing. Um, so in terms of healthcare policy, uh, how is, how do you think, you know, COVID has kind of blown the door open as to, as to, you know, how Americans should be thinking about their sure. health? Well, I mean, this is, you're pointing out something uh, that is another abject failure of public health leadership. Uh, 
instead of talking about what was controllable, what, what people could actually do to stop uh, the, 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 the worst effects of the virus, which means get in shape, okay, lose weight. The number one risk factor for people besides age, there are two most important risk factors. Number one is obesity, and the second is what's called complicated diabetes. And of course, di that means diabetes with kidney failure, diabetes with vascular disease, diabetes with heart disease, they go together. Uh, and uh, instead of focusing on the public health advice, there was never any mention of it that I recall uh, from the people in the task force. Uh, they're busy telling you, uh, you know, to, to wear a mask and to, uh, you know, to wash your hands and to stay indoors away from beaches and parks. I mean, uh, so this was a gross failure uh, and in fact, uh, you know, I talked about this in the book a little bit, but there was a very unsophisticated understanding by the doctors and the task force about the risk factors even. There was extensive data on all they would say was, well, oh, so many Americans have underlying conditions. Well, that's true, but not all underlying conditions are, are alike. For instance, if you have isolated high blood pressure and no other underlying condition, that is not a risk factor for serious disease from COVID. That's just factually wrong to think that's a risk factor, high blood pressure, but nothing else. And in fact, it turns out that two thirds of people who died from COVID have six or more comorbidities, not one, not two, not three. And so, you know, that's a, that's a much smaller population. Uh, but the second part is that of this sort of related answer is not just that people should, should take their own health uh, and their own personal responsibility for some of their health conditions uh, very seriously, but one of the impacts of the fear and the lockdowns and the isolation of our younger generation, the younger generation has been destroyed in the United States by the lockdowners, by the Burks Fauci policies, by the people advocating the lockdowns. It wasn't just the suicides, it was the massive increases of teenagers in drug abuse, in substance abuse, in, uh, in opioid abuse, the massive increases in anxiety disorder, in depressive disorder, uh, the tripling of self-harm visits to doctors by teenagers. What do I mean by that? Self-harm is putting cigarettes out on your skin, slashing your wrists. These are people that have serious psychological problems now due to the lockdown policies, not the virus. The lockdowns of that, these are voluntary. And now I'm going to tie into your question, which is that one of the other public health disasters of the lockdowns were people who are in the college-age people in the United States, 52% had an unwanted weight gain during the 2020 lockdowns. Yeah. And that weight gain averaged 28 pounds. Okay, it's not a five pound, okay, gotta stop eating an extra dessert. Yeah. It's that these people have now obesity. Mm -hmm. These people have significant medical problems on the horizon. The lockdowners created that, inflicted that by isolating uh, teenagers, young adults, and actually, if you look at some of the studies, the fastest rate of rise of obesity in children is in kids between 5 and 11. I mean, this is a heinous, uh, this is, I, I can't even, I, I don't have the vocabulary to talk about how sinful the uh, incompetence and the lockdown advice givers have been in this. 
And we can never we can never forget that. It's not enough to say, oh, we've learned that the schools didn't need to be closed. No, it's not new knowledge. It was known by spring summer 2020, by the late spring 2020, the schools should never have been closed. There was never science for it. And the teachers, educators, the university leaders now with their fear-invoking booster and vaccine mandates for kids, college students who have extremely low risk from the illness, and all they have is the risk from the vaccine to contend with. This is a this is the biggest uh, sinful abuse of public health. Again, hate to speak with hyperbole all the time, but but in modern history. No, I think it's very true. And I mean, I, a lot of the people that I know or, or have seen, you know, via social media that have struggled with this, I mean, it's been a very emotional and anxiety-inducing experience for them. Like going through 2020 and every time they turn on the news, you know, if they happen to be a liberal and every time, they're turning on the news at CNN or it's MSNBC and and Dr. Birx is on there or Dr. Fauci is on there saying, like, you should be terrified for your life. We're all going to die like the these people are going to do what they're going to do. And that's going to be to, like, emotionally overeat, to lock themselves inside their home, not get any exercise. I mean, it's terrifying. And I think some of the some of the interesting like and by interesting, I mean, terrible uh, pushback that I've seen is like one of the stories that I saw was the owner of a. Uh, it's like the CEO of Sweetgreen, you know, Sweetgreen, like salad sure. place. He had been talking about in uh, in their like public Slack channel about like, man, all these people wouldn't have to get vaccinated, you know, if America wasn't such an obese country. And he like got canceled for 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 saying that, that like people would not be dying and would not be, you know, at such a high rate. People would not be at such high risk if like, you know, people took better care of their health. I mean, it it. it this whole thing just seems to be a kind of uh it's all very performative you know it's it's we're very focused on like everyone's going to die the panic messaging but but you know like you said not on actual the actual like practical things that we could be doing to to make people more safe what do you think that i mean the, the reason i find the obesity question relating relating to covid so interesting is because it seems like one could paint a much broader picture of the challenges we're going to face in the 21st century in American healthcare, which is politically, socially, a total unwillingness to tell people when they're doing wrong by their own health. Uh, we live in a culture where uh, being judgy is the single worst thing you can do. And it seems like we're heading um, into an entire generation of people who are going to be vastly overweight. They're going to have health complications that come from it. It's going to result in challenges with them having children. They're going to get sick sooner. I mean, w w what do you think healthcare in the 21st century looks like unless we turn around this complete unwillingness by our public health authorities to do the one thing that they ostensibly should be responsible for, which is encouraging a healthy lifestyle in people? Yeah, I mean, this is again uh, almost inexplicable. It's it's tragic, really. We we know there's a there's a enormous body of literature that obesity is the number one public health problem. Period. Uh, and in the United States, is the world leader in obesity. Uh, and when you look at the curves, it's it's happening everywhere. But uh, this is accelerating, particularly uh, and uh, in children and young young people. So that portends a very grim future because when you look at the data, obesity uh, and then cigarette smoking and then alcohol abuse, 
are, are really associated with the majority of health problems, uh, including cancers, by the way. Uh, this is not, not commonly understood. And so uh, when you don't tackle things that are considered lifestyle uh, behavioral problems, that's what these are categorized as. That's not a judgment. That's a factual uh, medical categorization. Uh, these are things that we need to focus on and take control of because there are certain things you cannot do anything about, like your genes, uh, but you certainly can do something about uh, these sort of uh, what are called lifestyle behavioral behavioral issues. So if we don't get a handle on that, and instead we somehow turn to a culture uh, where, like you say, it's forbidden to talk about uh, a health issue of obesity, and in fact, if you go down to... Uh, you know, Soho in New York, and you see these big billboards of uh, fashion models that somehow now we are glorifying obesity. Uh, I, I just find that surreal, uh, but also tragic, uh, because uh, that should not be a goal. A goal should be to be physically fit, period. Dr. Atlas, where can people keep up with everything you're writing about and talking about, and, and what should they be paying attention to um, going into this next year where it's not very clear that uh, uh, our public health leaders are going to do any better? Well, I mean, they're, they're failing. I mean, this is a continuation of the lack of science, the lack of logic. In fact, not only do we have uh, a failure with, uh, with the pandemic management this, this year, 2021, but we have... Uh, a president who appointed one of the leaders of the failure of policy from the previous administration to be in charge of this one. So that was sort of an obvious destined to fail. Uh, there's been a denial of science uh, by, uh, by the people in charge, particularly by Dr. Fauci. I mean, the vaccine mandates are not just uh, unnecessary uh, because almost everybody who's high risk has been vaccinated and therefore you're privately protected, but the vaccines do not protect against the public spread of the illness after about two months, uh, particularly against uh, specifically Omicron after four months for the other previous variants. So, I mean, this stuff is disproven, yet we somehow don't believe in fact. So what people should do... Uh, I mean, I actually think it's very important to read my book, and, I, and I'm not just saying it because I wrote the book, and I'm not just saying it because of any other secondary gain. It's, it's important because you're not going to read the facts. This book is written free from the filters of politics and a media that tries to suffocate fact. That's the world. That's the country we have here. Uh, the second thing uh, is to uh, keep yourself informed. I mean, when, when you're listening to people Listen if they talk about the actual data and are consistent in what they say, or if they're just making proclamations like someone said recently, I am science. Uh, that, that's not, uh, that's just a pathologic personality, frankly, uh, to even think that. But, um, you know, uh, you need to have people who are consistent who are citing, citing C-I-T-I-N-G, the, the data and going through. And, and, for instance, we know that it's factually proven that people who have recovered from COVID, whether you're vaccinated or not, have a lower risk of getting another infection than people who've been vaccinated but never infected. Meaning the recovered, the protection from recovery from COVID is better, period, with or without a vaccine, than it is protection from being vaccinated but never infected. Similarly, we also know from the data 
uh, from the Israel study, but also from other studies, that uh, the infection protection, protection against infection by people who've recovered, uh, is no different if you've gotten the vaccine or not. So they have a vaccine mandated uh, is not only uh, counter to the evidence, it's also undermining. When you, when you mandate a drug, a vaccine or anything for people who don't need the drug or the vaccine, you're undermining the credibility for people who actually do need the vaccine, which are the high-risk people. Uh, so that, that's been a destructive impact on public health. So uh, where, do you, where do you find information? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, that's difficult. There's a website called uh, Collateral Global, which is uh, run by Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a colleague of mine. Uh, and that's a good source of information where he's interviewing rational people and putting forth data. Uh, Koldorf, Bhattacharya, and myself are the founding scholars of Hillsdale College's Ac uh, Academy for Science and Freedom. We'll be holding symposia, publishing things, and, and writing things on the web. And I will be, uh, you know, uh, irrepressibly vocal about fact because fact matters. And uh, I, I think that uh, the, the political attempt or the attempt by the lockdowners to suppress information, it was successful against certain people because I know I got hundreds of emails from all over the, the world really, but more than 100 scientists in the US, including from my own institution, Stanford School of Medicine really, uh, and NIH itself, saying that they were afraid to step forward, but everything I'm saying is correct and I should keep going. So this, uh, the intimidation works, but it doesn't, it doesn't really work on me uh, because uh, the driving force is not just that uh, you know, truth matters, it's also that you get thousands of people, millions of people all over the country, clearly. Uh, they need to have credible people speak out and say the truth. I got, I got emails from people during my White House stint uh, people who um, wrote me and said, thank God for you, they're praying for me. People, you know, clergymen, uh, mothers, fathers, uh, nine to five workers, midnight shift workers, scientists, doctors, lawyers, uh, but also heart-wrenching emails from people, uh, please keep talking, my husband just committed suicide because of the lockdowns. Um, you know, my daughter just tried to kill herself because of the lockdowns. Please keep going. She needs a reason to live. This kind of motivation uh, is there for people like me, and I'm not the only one speaking out. Uh, but this kind of motivation is not going to be stopped by a CNN hit piece uh, or by some, you know, ignorant reporters who don't know how to think themselves out of a paper bag. It's not going to be stopped by uh, vindictive, insecure government bureaucrats who are in this Orwellian way trying to blame people like me who were opposed to what was implemented for the failure of what was implemented, okay? That's not going to fly. We have strong motivations to speak the truth, and, uh, and so people uh, should just try to keep themselves as informed as possible, and that does not mean to use Twitter. That's not a good source of information. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Atlas. We'll we'll take that advice in stride and thank less you. Twitter for you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> thank you for everything that you do and thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate that. Thank you. 
That was an absolutely fantastic episode of Dr. Atlas, and we thank you for taking time out of his busy schedule to come on. Uh, once again, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, be sure to check out the Fellowship for American Statecraft. That's AmericanMoment.org slash fellowship foundations of American statecraft program, which is 10 week credentialing program uh, on a different policy area, in this case, foreign policy, that's AmericanMoment.org slash foundations. Um, be sure to rate and review this podcast. It really does help. Hundreds of you have done so. Please keep doing so. Send us feedback. Email us at podcast.americanmoment.org. We want to hear from you. If you have guest ideas, send them our way. Harass them on Twitter to come on the show. Chances are we've asked them and they've taken their sweet time in responding. Um, but uh Thank you guys for for tuning in again. We're really excited uh, to be doing the podcast uh, for a second year in a row. Uh, we're extremely grateful that thousands of you listen to it every week. And uh, we look forward to a fantastic season ahead uh, and building American Moment for another year because uh, this program needs to exist. This organization needs to exist. Um, and the need that we've tapped into uh, feels more acute than ever. Thanks you guys for thank thank you guys for listening. You can tell I'm really tired. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production, filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.